Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our newest Philosophy Exchange podcast. Here from Philosophy Exchange are Lorenzo and I, Jakob, and we are very delighted to be joined by Alice Murphy joining us from Munich today. Welcome. Hi, both. Hi, Lorenzo. Hi, Jakob. Thank you for having me. Alice, we are very happy that you're here today because we want to talk about aesthetics in science and you finished your PhD two years ago in scientific imagination and thought experiments, and you have been working and are still working on different topics in aesthetics and science, and something that might be connected to it, surprise in science, which we might be talking about later also a little bit. So yeah, so that's why we're very, very happy to have you here. So obviously our first question has to be, what is, aesthetics and science or what are we talking about when we talk about aesthetics and science? Yeah sometimes it's understood in quite broad sense so as a way of exploring topics in philosophy of science in connection with topics in aesthetics and philosophy of art so this might be models and fictions or the notion of representation or theories of creativity and this is how I got into aesthetics of science so I was looking at how scientific thought experiments are often compared with works of literature. But there's another narrower sense, which I take it to be what we're perhaps more interested in talking about today. And this is the role of aesthetic values in science and how scientific objects are evaluated aesthetically. So then following from that, well, what's meant by aesthetic values in science? Usually the focus is on classical aesthetic concepts like simplicity or beauty, elegance, and they're normally applied to scientific theories. So we often hear these great minds, these great, these great scientists discussing the importance of beauty in their domain. So usually these quotations come from physicists from the likes of Einstein and Heisenberg and Dirac. And they talk about beauty both as like a motivation for doing science, but also more interestingly, perhaps for philosophers of science, they claim that the beauty of a theory can be linked with its truth. So this is kind of what's dominated the discussion. But more recently, there's been an expansion of discussions of aesthetic values in science. So philosophers today aren't solely focused on properties like beauty and simplicity, um, but other aesthetic properties as well. So features like the sublime or the profound um, or even ugliness has come up. And also they're not just interested in theories anymore. And um, they're looking to other fe features of scientific practice as well. So for example, um, Milena Ivanova and I, and we're putting together an edited volume on the aesthetics of experiments. They've been largely left out of the discussion, but they're also evaluated using aesthetic terminology and they can afford aesthetic experiences. And as well, and um, the likes of Derek Turner, Caitlin Wiley and Adrian Curry have worked on aesthetics in paleontology, so like in fossil preparation. And um, so, yeah, that's just to give a sense of where the literature has been and, and kind of where it is heading to. That's really fascinating, Alice. And um, I have a question that mm -hmm. maybe for a philosopher of science can be a little bit less important or strong, but maybe for someone who is not working in the field could be the first question. So why should we as philosophers be puzzled by the appearance of this aesthetic terminology or the role that uh, aesthetic values could play in science. So mm -hmm. what is that is motivating the philosophical 
fascination, interest in this topic? Yeah, it's a good question. I find it is a really polarizing topic. Um, people think either, oh, it's kind of obviously true that the aesthetic matters for science in some important ways, or, you know, they're kind of horrified by the idea. So yeah, it's a good question. And it's an interesting one because a major topic in philosophy of science has been science and social and ethical values, right? So this is a very much a mainstream issue, as it should be. So perhaps one way to get the discussion of aesthetics off the ground a bit more is by making links to those areas. So yeah, some people are kind of worried about this idea that aesthetics may play some role in science. And, and I get that, right? It does seem odd if science is meant to be this rational pursuit, this act of sticking to the cold hard fact, then a sense that scientists might be motivated or selective due to aesthetic factors, due to things that they regard as beautiful, say, this seems worrying, right? It seems counter to what we think good science is. But again, like making this parallel with the values in science literature, that's really taught us that things just aren't that simple. Philosophy of science has let go of the idea that science is value-free and, and let go of the value-free ideal, right? That science should be value-free. Yeah, so I think that that's one way in which the conversation could be quite productively brought together. But yeah, I think there are various sources of scepticism which gives us kind of a good starting point for these discussions. So some might be the types of claims that I mentioned at the start that come from scientists. Sometimes people read it as saying that there's this immediate intrinsic connection between beauty and truth, but it doesn't take much to start putting pressure onto this, right? So we could think of examples from history of science where a theory was thought to be beautiful, but it's been dropped, or, you know, theories that are considered ugly and kind of counterintuitive and a bit weird, but you know, they're some of our best theories. So the notion then that there's this intimate connection between beauty and truth might seem worrying, but it's not the only way of thinking about how the aesthetic relates to the epistemic games of science. Yeah, to continue on this, I think also there's some like immediate views about the aesthetic that makes it seem at odds with scientific judgments. So firstly, a lot of people prescribe to the view that Aesthetic matters, matters are kind of wholly subjective, right? It's all just a matter of personal opinion and taste. Um, secondly, that aesthetic pleasure is this idea of disinterested pleasure. So this is this Kantian view, um, which means that it's very much separated from practical interests. So again, it feels like the aesthetic maybe isn't that relevant to science. It seems at odds with scientific judgments. Yeah, so I think all of that is to kind of say that thinking about the sources of scepticism can actually help bring to light why we should care about aesthetic values in science. Yeah, sorry, that was a bit of a long-winded answer. I think I actually have another reason for scepticisms for yeah. uh, people who, especially like a more common charge, I think, for philosophy in general, because mm -hmm. the first time I ever learned about that aesthetics and science is actually a thing, I think was actually during my master's. So even for someone doing philosophy, it was quite late and it was for me in the first moment was a little bit absurd but it was we were sitting at lunch and a friend of mine was having lunch with us and for her her it was one of these moments where philosophers talk about these really absurd topics that no one in their right mind would ever talk to and i think it was specifically aesthetics and thought experiments so whenever i met someone <laughs> through her or friends of hers, she was like, oh, he's doing this really rubbish stuff. He's talking about aesthetics and thought experiments. Like who's doing that? Um, because even for me, it was new. And for her, it was just like completely different, completely yeah. weird in a way. 
It's interesting though because in one sense I, it is kind of weird but in another sense like it does come up quite a lot it is something that people heard of these kind of notions of beauty and science it's definitely often a topic in kind of more popular works around science so I think it this is our job as philosophers right is to really try to investigate this and make sense of it and to try and state more clearly what's going on here but yeah I've had the same kind of <laughs> Skepticism thrown at me, um, especially when I'm working on exactly that topic, thought experiments and aesthetics. In general, thought experiments are the quintessence of like what the speculative philosophy does, right? Something like completely like it's considered normally as something completely disconnected from reality. And even when I try to talk about thought experiments in science, Mm. Uh, people look at me and they ask me, what do you mean with thought experiments in science? Like science is not those experiments and then I, you make examples of Newton, Galileo, Einstein and and they realize ah okay you meant that. I, I, I completely agree with you Alice that it's like the role of the philosopher to investigate some kind of connection or intuitive bonds between concepts, values that sometimes we just take for granted. Mm. I thought you didn't want to talk about thought experiments today Lorenzo. <laughs> Stronger than me, yeah. I, I think, I, yeah. Just for the information for the audience, would be some. Um, I, I'm just going to. I'm revise. I'm revising a paper on thought experiments, and I'm really nervous about it. And I said before the record that I was not going to talk about that, but <laughs> I, I cannot say I cannot hold my promise. So yeah, sorry about that. I, I actually have a question about something you said earlier and it's because I think what and you're right what we're going to focus focus about later are these aesthetic values and this narrow sense you mentioned but one other thing you said and that's something that struck me also when I prepared is aesthetic values can be a motivation for for doing science and mm -hmm. uh, this actually props up quite a lot when people talk about like how science started I don't know in the 18th or 19th century but also then I read in a newspaper actually this issue that uh, in some kind of biodiversity study for a certain area that suddenly people didn't know the role of wasps in this biodiversity because people had been studying bees because they are more beautiful or less ugly or however this works exactly and I was wondering whether this is also a topic that philosophers are, are actually talking about right now. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I was perhaps a bit dismissive of kind of the interest in, in aesthetic values in motivating scientists. And that's probably me implicitly kind of subscribing to some kind of context of discovery, context of justification type distinction and philosophers of science. And then therefore people working in aesthetics and science have been really keen to try and like focus on their justification aspect. But you're right, it's a really interesting topic. I think as well, part of it is how can aesthetic values also lead us astray? How can we have certain aesthetic commitments that sometimes make us less creative, that kind of narrow down the scope of, of what we're looking into? So I don't know if there's been so much on that, but I, hopefully there will be. And I think it's definitely an interesting topic. Thank you, Alice. And also just for our listeners, for whom is not familiar with, with the distinction between context of discovery and context of justification, in general is quite accepted, a general conceptual distinction between the context where the scientists uh, develop their interest and they make their choice for what they want to study. And instead the context where they are trying to motivate, argue, also prove an hypothesis. 
That's true. And this is why this distinction is normally used in the context of the discussion of values in science and the role that values play in science, because in the context of discovery is much more accepted uh, among philosophers that values can play a role, also political values, social values, uh, moral values, and uh, why not aesthetical values. The question for the philosopher of science is exactly if the values play some role also in the context of justification, and there are some works about this. And that's why probably also you, Alice, you were saying that you were focusing on the justification context because it's the most problematic one. It seems like the one that, at least intuitively, we don't want values to play a role. This was just to clarify for the audience. Yeah, great. Um, so, Alice, let's go a little bit deeper in the discussion. Mm -hmm. Let's consider exactly what is the role that these aesthetic values play in the context of science, or for example, scientific thought experiments or other types of scientific reasoning. And uh, maybe you can give us some examples of what you mean when you say that aesthetical values play a role at least partially independent of the epistemic values that could be connected to the classic uh, aesthetic values like simplicity, as you said, or elegance or beauty. Why don't you tell us something uh, more about this? Yeah, so a central question maybe is to do with how does the aesthetic relate to the epistemic and to the aims of science and to the progress of science. So perhaps I'll sketch out a, a few different perspectives out there and then really get to this kind of issue, which is, are we really just talking about the epistemic? Is there really anything genuinely aesthetic going on here? So I mentioned at the start that um, we have these connections between the beauty of a theory and its truth. And there's not many people that kind of defend that there's some kind of necessary connection between these things. But a most prominent view that tries to explore this connection, at least, comes from James McAllister. He was writing, yeah, I think he started writing on this in the late 1980s. And he argues that scientists' aesthetic preferences of theories get shaped over time, that they get shaped in such a way that they match the features of successful theories. So the connection between beauty and truth for him then is based on what he calls the aesthetic induction. So by this, he means that when a theory is thought of as beautiful, it's because it's similar to existing successful theories. So it's more likely to be true or empirically successful. And on McAllister's view, beauty gets reduced. So beautiful theories are those which are simple, which are simple and um, symmetric, sorry, and, and elegant. So this is one major account and it's, it's been developed a bit. Adrian Curry's written on it kind of in a similar view to McAllister recently. Others, though, have been less concerned with truth, and especially in recent years, you know, people have pointed out that scientists are often after other epistemic goods too, um, most importantly, understanding. Um, how, so how does the aesthetic relate to understanding? So, for example, Milena Ivanova has argued that aesthetic features of scientific theories are because we decided to construct them in a certain way. And we want theories that have certain aesthetic properties because it makes them easier for us to work with. Angela Breitenbach as well, she's argued that when scientists aim at developing beautiful, simple or elegant theories, in, in aiming for that, they develop ones that enhance understanding. 
So yeah, so this is just like a brief idea of some of the theories out there that, that connect the aesthetic and the epistemic. But yeah, as you indicate, Lorenzo, there is an important issue concerning the aesthetic and the epistemic. And um, one way in which I've been trying to understand this is through a dilemma. I'm not 100% convinced by this dilemma, but I think it's quite a useful way of setting things out. So the first horn of the dilemma comes from Kane Todd's work. So he focuses on McAllister's view, this kind of reductionist view. So it's just worth saying that he hasn't addressed all the theories, but he argues that there's reason to doubt that the use of aesthetic language in science is actually genuinely aesthetic. He argues that instead they're kind of used in this metaphorical way. There are these instead these masked epistemic terms. And part of this is to point out that aesthetic language can be used in quite a loose way. And he argues that if it's all ultimately reducible to features like simplicity or symmetry, then perhaps we're not really in the business of aesthetics at all. It's just kind of flowery language, but you know, really these are epistemic factors. And then the other horn of the dilemma states that, well, if aesthetic judgments can't be reduced um, in this way to something epistemic, then we're still left with the need to explain their role in science and why we should care about them. So the thought here is that, okay, sure, perhaps these judgments are genuinely aesthetic, but so what? Like, you know, are they relevant to scientific value or not? So yeah, as I said, I, I do make use of this dilemma myself. I'm not sure how helpful it is. I think sometimes maybe it kind of rests on an idea that we can clearly separate the aesthetic and the epistemic, which I don't think we can. I think they're gonna be more intertwined than that. But at the same time, I think it can help us be more productive and um, with our theories of aesthetics and science. It's really fascinating. And just to be clear, to be honest, I really found um, the dilemma really clear. So really <laughs> useful to distinguish the two cases. I just wanted to ask a really small question, clarificatory question about the second horn of the dilemma. So in the second case, the problem would be a kind of category mistake. So something like applying a, a, a category, a system of category that, that is just wrong uh, to science or to scientific reasoning, like aesthetic, or at least you have to give some kind of motivation to, for why it is not a category mistake. Is it correct as an interpretation? Yeah, I think, I think the view again is like, okay, so if we're interested in scientific practice, if we're interested in the relation between theories in the world, how scientists make assessments, we, we kind of need to say why these aesthetic judgments matter. And if we're not going for this reductionist approach, then it almost seems like, okay, sure, they make aesthetic judgments all the time, but what's that really doing for them? Like, is this really, is this really relevant to us as, as philosophers of science? And the challenge is big because in a certain sense, the difference that these aesthetic values as aesthetic values could make is still judged in epistemic terms, right? Because we normally judge the value of a scientific theory or scientific model or a scientific thought experiments in terms of epistemic virtues in the end. So it's interesting because it, it's kind of delicate balance between not losing the aesthetic part and just referring, reducing it to the epistemic level but seeing seeing or trying to see the connection between uh, the aesthetic values and the epistemic values and how they interact with each other maybe it's really fascinating yeah yeah exactly and one thing i think sometimes like 
Kane Todd's work on this has been taken to be like really strictly against engaging with aesthetics and science projects. I don't think that's true. I think he's just saying that perhaps where things are, that most dominant theories haven't really given us a convincing account of the aesthetic and science yet. And his kind of challenge that he opens up is, can we say that these judgments are kind of matching, are similar enough to aesthetic judgments made in more obvious aesthetic domains? So like with works of art or with nature and, and so on. Yeah, I think the dilemma is also quite interesting. And I've seen you've made an attempt at solving this dilemma. And I'd be quite interesting to hear you talk more about how you solve the dilemma. Yeah, yeah. So I take the, the way to solve it is to meet Todd's challenge, which is finding a theory of aesthetic value or appreciation in science that is more aligned with theories that we get in the context of artworks and, and other aesthetic things, things that we more readily accept as aesthetic. And to do this, it involves like turning away from a focus on aesthetic properties, like simplicity, like symmetry and so on, towards thinking instead of like views on aesthetic evaluation. So in this paper that is still under review, <laughs> it's been such a long time, <laughs> But yeah, so in the paper, I use thought experiments as the case study to try and kind of flesh out this view. And um, so, as I mentioned at the start, thought experiments are often compared with works of literature and they're also evaluated in aesthetic terms. So one example is the famous Galileo's Falling Bodies thought experiment. And this has been described as the most beautiful thought experiments in science. So yeah, I, I think that they should be brought into the discussion a bit more. So thinking about this dilemma then, I've proposed a view where we focus on the relation um, between uh, the content of an artwork um, and the way in which that artwork conveys the content through its formal properties. Um, so the content of an artwork, I, I borrow this from yeah, theories in, of aesthetic value in philosophy of art, and the content is its kind of overarching point or purpose. And this relation, this form content relation is, is a, a, an accepted source of aesthetic values in, in the context of art. And um, so the thought is when we appreciate artworks, we're not just interested in the themes that they explore, like kind of their subject matter. We're not also not just interested in their formal properties alone. We're interested instead in this kind of interconnection between these two aspects. So how an artwork explores a theme via the particular choices that the artist makes. Um, so maybe like a particular sequence of events in the fiction that explores these kind of broader overarching themes. So to bring this back to science and, and thought experiments, well, thought experiments are also clearly concerned with abstract ideas. So when we're given a thought experiment, we generalize from the particular details of the, the, of the narrative to say something about other cases. So when Galileo put forward his falling bodies thought experiment, he's interested in getting at the relation between the weight of a body and the speed at which it falls. And um, so this is kind of the content, this is the overarching point or purpose. And um, but then Galileo explores this in the thought experiment in a particular way. So this content is expressed through the particular events and objects used in the described scenarios. This is what thought experiments do. They explore these more abstract themes in this more concrete way. And in this case, you know, he describes a tower and you drop these balls from the tower and so on. So the argument is that kind of similar to the, to the artwork case, a source of aesthetic values of thought experiments can also come from how the formal features 
bring about the overarching content. So this, I think, is, is a source of genuine aesthetic value. So I think that addresses the first one of the dilemma. What about its relevance to science then? So the second one, um, the argument I develop is that this is then an aesthetic value, but which has an epistemic payoff. It's got an epistemic benefit. Um, I, I do that by uh, saying that it can contribute to understanding because kind of well-formulated thought experiments, they enhance our ability to imagine them well, they give us access to that more abstract, generalizable content. Yeah, and in the paper, I compared two of Darwin's thought experiments and to do this, one's considered a successful one, one's considered this really bad one that everyone laughed at and it, it led them astray. And yeah, I think one way in which we can then explore successful versus unsuccessful thought experiments is, is by this, this relation. So I think it's, it's a good stab at solving the dilemma. Something that I'm personally interested for my research is the, the concept of style in mm. scientific representation. And I think this kind of relation between the content and the form is getting close to what I am think style can mean in the context of scientific representation. So different scientific representation maybe represent with different styles, so creating a different relation between the form and content. And it would be interesting to cash out in an even more analytical way what actually we take to be form and content in scientific of experiments in scientific mm. models and, uh, and so on. So I think it's really fascinating and it opens up like, a different key to interpret other problems also in the and um, in, in the philosophy of science discussion. Great, yeah, um, the, the, the idea of style is really interesting because I've been thinking about thought experiments as kind of a genre and, and thinking about genre constraints in, in art and how genre can affect our imagination. So yeah, the notion of style coming in there sounds yeah super interesting. I have a, an understanding question for a lay person <laughs> in aesthetics. So you said or you propose in, in your working paper, you propose to move away from values like simplicity, beauty, something that's very easily understandable in an intuitive sense to other types of evaluation, like the form and content one. And this seems to be much more complex than just saying, okay, this is beautiful or uh, this is simple. It's, it's a little bit more complex to comprehend or to grasp or even to assess. Is this a specific different type of aesthetic value or evaluation, or is this just the same but a little bit more complex to understand? I think that, so one way that I've been thinking about it is a move away from these properties like simplicity, symmetry, beauty, towards, like, towards aesthetic evaluations that actually seem more prominent in philosophy of art. So, Philosophers of art aren't really spending a lot of their time thinking about the notion of simplicity and of elegance and so on. So that's kind of one motivation. Also, another thing that Kane Todd points out in his paper is that is the notion of simplicity that people use in the context of art, like when describing a Mondrian painting or something, is that really similar to what scientists are using? So partly I think it's a way of trying to evade this this real reductionist approach when perhaps when we think of the cases of science we really are talking about simplicity but we don't really mean something aesthetic by it whether or not I commit to that view I don't know but I think this 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 account is at least a more fits more with 
with how we actually appreciate artwork and is therefore perhaps more promising in terms of getting something that's genuinely aesthetic. Thanks. I, I was I was just thinking of just adding something to the conversation just really rapidly. Because the, this summer I was in a summer school in Vienna on representation in science and arts. Oh, nice. and we were also with Lopez, who is a scholar of philosophy of art, philosophy of mm -hmm. photography. And we read Bolzano. And um, he has a really interesting approach towards beauty and what beauty is, and is really epistemic in a certain sense. So the idea is that we feel a, an aesthetic feeling, uh, an aesthetic experience, when uh, the object in front of us or the situation in front of us, in a certain sense, is a spark, is a trigger for some kind of reflection that is not completely articulated conceptually. So there is this kind of element of surprise, but also like material for, for developing thoughts and reflections and maybe doubts and questions about what is in front of us. Mm. And uh, in this artificial way, I will connect our discussion about aesthetic values in science with the element of surprise. Mm. That was really like on the run. So yeah, I hope that it was not too artificial, but yeah. That, that was great. Uh, I've written that down to have a look at, but I think that, yeah. yeah, that kind of fits maybe quite nicely with how I'm thinking about surprise in the context of the aesthetic. So I, I've written this paper with Stephen French then on the value of surprise in science. And when we were working on the paper, we weren't explicitly relating it to, to work in aesthetics, but I, but I think it can be. So I could, I'll, I'll try and bring it back around. But yeah, the, the paper engages with an argument that's been put forward by Mary Morgan. Morgan is interested in the use of computer simulation methods in science and whether it's, it's kind of an overall good thing for science. She argues that ordinary concrete experimentation has epistemic privilege over models and simulations. She discusses this in the context of economics, actually. So, Jacob, I don't know if you're maybe familiar with this, but it's been picked up as a more general claim about the epistemic power of, of these different practices. And one of her arguments is that computer simulations cannot surprise us in the same way that experiments can, and in particular, they can't confound, is, is that how she labels it. And this is because computer simulations are ultimately controlled by the experimenter. Um, at best, she argues they can kind of elicit surprising behaviours, but ultimately these can be explained by the setup of the simulation. Whereas experiments can produce results that aren't just merely surprising, but they're also like so surprising, so unexpected that they can require scientists to revise existing theories. So kind of genuinely new phenomena can emerge and then scientists are left dealing, what, what should we do with this? And her view is because although experiments are like an artificial controlled setup, um, they're not controlled in the same way as a simulation. And this is because even though it's kind of controlled, it's domesticated, as she calls it, we still bring in an aspect of the world into the experimental setup. So it's just going to have features that we don't know about yet. And some of these might be revealed in the course of doing the experiment. Yeah, so this is the argument. I became interested in, this in the context of thought experiments and thinking about how do thought experiments compare with experiments more generally and issues around the epistemic privileging of experiments over thought experiments and Stephen had been thinking about surprise in the context of the ontology of theory. So some people argue for 
Platonism about theories or kind of Popper's World 3 view, saying that, well, theories are capable of surprise, so they can't just be kind of mind-dependent objects. They've got these features that we just don't know about yet, like objects in the world do. Yeah, so we kind of complicate this distinction a little bit and, and push back a bit on Morgan's arguments, but thinking about the aesthetic, so yeah, what Lorenzo said on Balsano is really interesting. So I hadn't thought too much about this, but I, I do think it's relevant. I think there's room for thinking about surprises having this kind of hybrid aesthetic epistemic quality. And for also maybe thinking more surprise in, as, a, as a feeling, as this kind of psychological notion. And one context in particular where I think it's interesting is there's this very prominent view of aesthetic experience in psychology that's been in, invoked in the aesthetics of science accounts. And this is the fluency account. So I don't know if you familiar with this but it basically states that aesthetic experiences experiences of beauty are kind of these feelings of fluency so it's a, a view about our kind of metacognitive feelings so aesthetic pleasure on this account comes from processing an object with ease and um, like a painting or a, a piece of music or a mathematical proof so yeah it's this feeling about our own mental processes and kind of the more fluently we can kind of process something the idea is more aesthetic pleasure we get and a cited benefit of the view is that it can help explain the connections that people have made between beauty and truth. So it, it's not saying that there really is this kind of intimate connection between beauty and truth in the sense that our beautiful theories are the true ones. Instead, it's kind of saying that the reason why people have brought these two, thing, two things together is that evaluations of beauty and evaluations of truth have a common source and this is this process influency and that's why they kind of feel connected. So I think this account's really interesting but I think sometimes what we value in science and what the surprise stuff kind of shows us is that what we value both aesthetically and epistemically is very much this opposite of this feeling of fluency right. So surprises like this it's really disruptive, it's disfluent, it tells us that we didn't know as much as we thought and it gives us some result that is unexpected that we can't explain yet. So, yeah, I mean, I, I need to read what you suggested, but I think thinking about surprise a bit more and maybe other things like notions of the sublime or the profound and in the context of aesthetic values in science can actually put a bit of pressure on, on the scope of these processing views. It's, it's not all about that. It's not all about this kind of ease of, of processing. Sometimes it's, yeah, very much the opposite. It's very disruptive. And maybe just listening to you and trying to make sense in my mind of these two ideas, the fluency and uh, the disruptive element. Mm. Maybe the two things are not necessarily in contrast. Uh, this is completely a speculative exercise now, so forgive me. <laughs> but the idea maybe is that it's fluent in the form of like producing new questions. So it's really rich and uh, it presents a dilemma so that you can have many different ways to develop it, mm -hmm. but it doesn't give you the answers immediately to the problem. So this is something that I think I'm experiencing now. I'm doing a training with children philosophy with children mm. and normally we start with a question that is grammatically closed but conceptually open like i don't know asking them if the theseus ship is the same ship or not mm -hmm. now in this sense the, the question in itself or the fable or the myth the story that we tell children then it's not giving them any kind of answer so it is kind of puzzling for them but at the same time 
as it is presented, opens up to the discussion, to the conversation, to uh, like the challenge to our intuitions and so on. So maybe the two things of the fluency and Bolzano instead kind of focus on the puzzlement. Maybe the two things are reconcilable in interesting way, and that that would be like a nice, but another nice paper. Maybe <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no, that, really that was... interesting. Yeah, I think thinking about kind of the different dimensions in which some object or an experiment or something could be considered either disruptive or fluent is is a really nice way of thinking about. Because in one sense, say if you get an experiment and um, that has this impact, often like the results themselves are really clear, right? There's there's nothing disfluent about that it's just like but what do we do with this like how do we understand this that, that's really disruptive so yeah that, that that's a nice thought actually the work that i was referring to uh, by bolzano is called essays on beauty and the arts if okay. someone is interested also like in the audience but also alice alice if, uh, if she wants to have a look at that i have one thing that just struck me a little bit when when you talked about morgan's understanding of surprise and when you said surprise mm. and and this connection when i thought about surprise when preparing for this interview i thought exactly about this kind of psychological feeling like it's something new it's something disruptive it's, it's somehow amazing to me i didn't understand it beforehand even if i may not completely understand it now but it, there's there's something that changed in me and well at least in most scientific terms, I find there's some positive element to it in, in mm. many cases. And the way Morgan seems to define it is, it seems to be in non, specifically in non-aesthetic ways, in epistemic ways, yes, but non-aesthetic ways. It mm -hmm. feels like she's saying, okay, well, in experiments, you maybe couldn't have known because there's something out there, but in, in computer simulations or in models, if you didn't know this before, it's kind of your own fault. Mm -hmm. you didn't really prepare beforehand okay you feel surprised but it's not really that what matters and maybe that goes back to okay there's an aesthetic element but that's not really epistemic maybe that kind of connects it back to our earlier discussion here yeah yeah great and I think that's kind of exactly the type of move that she might make if, if she wanted to kind of resist the, the aesthetic component and I think as well it, yeah it's important to note that that argument doesn't depend on accepting these kind of psychological notions of doing much work I think an experiment could be confounding even if some scientists didn't have that experience of surprise right yeah so no that, that that's really important and I think when Stephen and I were writing the paper yeah we were just thinking about it in terms of epistemic terms so yeah this is this is more kind of strain from that a little bit one last question Alice uh, for our listeners if you have one or two papers or books for someone who's now really interested in getting into aesthetic and science do you have a recommendation for them where to start yeah um so milena ivanova has written some really great kind of broad overview pieces both of which are in philosophy compass so one's on aesthetic values in science more generally and one's on the aesthetics of experiments so yeah I would, I would definitely check those out also yeah as I mentioned her and I are editing a book at the moment on aesthetics of scientific experiments and that's very much an interdisciplinary approach so once that's out that should also be a key text I think aside from that I, one thing I mentioned right at the start was very much this move away from thinking about aesthetic values in the context of theories and kind of these aesthetic properties and their relationship with truth 
more towards actually thinking about scientific practice and the more everyday notions of scientific practice. And I think where that's done best, or it's done very well at least, is in um, Derek Turner's book on paleo aesthetics. It's a really nice, really nice book that shows an interesting shift, I think, and is going to take us in new directions. Thank you. Those sound really interesting. That was really cool. And thank you for the really nice conversation. We could keep on for some time. Thank probably. you guys, I really enjoyed it too.